0: When Herbert and Juliana Baumeister purchased Fox Hollow Farm in 1991, they felt as though they had struck gold. The majestic 11,000 square foot Tudor-style mansion sat surrounded by 18 acres of lush green pastures and dense forest. Here they would be able to enjoy the peace and quiet of the countryside without being too far from downtown Indianapolis but the idyllic life they could have had at Fox Hollow Farm never came to be. Instead, it turned into a very real nightmare. I'm your host Natalie and this is Talk Murder With Me, Episode 16, Herb Baumeister and a Backyard Full of Bodies. Herbert Richard Baumeister, who went by Herb, was born in Indianapolis on April 7, 1947 to Herbert and Elizabeth Baumeister. The elder Herbert was an anesthesiologist and Elizabeth was a homemaker. Herb was the eldest of four children. His sister, Barbara, was born in 1948, his brother Brad in 1954, and brother Richard in 1956. Herb's childhood was quite normal and seemingly uneventful. The family lived a comfortable life thanks to Herbert Sr.'s successful medical practice. They lived in Washington Township, an affluent suburb of Indianapolis. When Herb got to high school, however, things changed. He just never fit in, regardless of how hard he tried, and became increasingly isolated. He began exhibiting bizarre and erratic behavior in class, distracting other students. Herb had a fascination with death and decay. One time, a school friend recalled, Herb picked up a dead crow on the way to school, put it in his pocket, and left it on his teacher's desk. Herbert Sr. noticed these concerning changes in his son and began taking him to see a psychiatrist. Herb was diagnosed with schizophrenia and multiple personality disorder. At the time, drug treatment for these psychiatric illnesses were in their infancy. Antipsychotic medications were still relatively new when Herb began displaying symptoms. Electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, was another treatment for schizophrenia, but its administration in the 1960s was controversial. Herb did not receive treatment, despite the severity of his condition. Herb graduated high school and went on to attend Indiana University. However, he only completed one semester before dropping out. In 1967, after being pushed by his father, he returned to university but once again only stayed for one semester, before dropping out for a final time. Herb was floating aimlessly for lack of a better term His father, being a well-respected doctor and esteemed member of the community, managed to help his son land a low-level job at the Indianapolis Star newspaper as a copy boy. Herb threw himself wholeheartedly into the work, and at first, the job appeared to be a good fit. It wasn't long, however, before he began to get on his co-workers' nerves. He needed constant praise and validation from everybody. Like he did in high school, he was desperate to fit in. His co-workers found him irritating and overbearing. It wasn't long before Herb either quit or was fired from his job at the newspaper. After spending much of his life a lonely outcast, Herb met Juliana Sater, a high school teacher. Juliana, who went by Julie, and Herb hit it off right away thanks to their similar values and goals. They were both politically conservative. They had both been members of the Young Republican Society at Indiana University. They were both interested in cars and hoped to one day run their own businesses. In November 1971, Herb and Julie married. Herb continued to struggle with his mental health, but Julie stood by his side through his darkest times. Just six months after they were married, Herb's father had his son committed to a psychiatric hospital as he was becoming severely depressed. Herb also had a serious problem with intimacy. He was deeply insecure about his body, never wanting his wife to see him naked. According to Julie, he would get dressed in the bathroom. Julie would later say that during their 25 year marriage, they only had sex six times. After leaving his job at the Indianapolis Star, Herb began working at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, a.k.a. the BMV. He carried his strong work ethic over to his new job and quickly progressed to a program director role. With Herb earning good money, Julie left her teaching job, hoping to start a family. While Herb was employed at the BMV, Julie gave birth to three children, Marie in 1979, Eric in 1981, and Emily in 1984. As was the case with his previous job, Herb was not well-liked by those he worked with. He was known to be unpredictable and volatile. His co-workers avoided him as best as they could. He was a weird guy who made them seriously uncomfortable. They feared his unexpected outbursts over small, insignificant things. Herb's bizarre sense of humor would be what brought an end to his employment at the BMV. In 1985, he completely alienated everyone he worked with when he urinated on a letter addressed to the governor of Indiana, Robert Orr. Everybody knew it was him, as he had pulled a similar stunt before when he urinated on his boss's desk. I don't know how the act of using the desk as a urinal didn't get him fired, but urinating on the letter was the final straw. Herb was out at the BMV. It's unclear whether Julie ever found out why Herb was really fired. Maybe she did know and didn't believe it, or she chose to ignore it. After being fired, Herb was arrested several times, once for his involvement in a hit-and-run accident while drinking and driving. In 1986, he was charged with stealing a car. The details are very vague about these incidents, but somehow, he managed to wriggle out of these charges and never served any time in prison. When it became clear that Herb was not going to find another job anytime soon, he took on the role of full-time dad while Julie returned to work. Herb was a patient and caring father. In fact, he really seemed to enjoy being a dad. Herb did eventually go back to work, this time at a thrift store. Still driven by the idea of one day running his own business, he put up with a job he considered to be below him and concentrated on learning the trade. Three years later, in 1988, Herb and Julie made the leap into entrepreneurship together. They borrowed $4,000 from Herb's now widowed mother, Elizabeth, and opened their own thrift store, which they named Save a Lot Thrift, the word save spelt without the E. The store turned out to be a hit. They worked with the highly respected Children's Bureau of Indianapolis, a charity benefiting area families who were struggling financially. Save-A-Lot earned $50,000 in its first year, clearly naturals in the business. The Baumeisters opened a second location the following year. To celebrate their success, they purchased Fox Hollow Farm in Westfield, Indiana, about 20 miles north of Indianapolis. The home had four bedrooms, an indoor swimming pool, and a riding stable. Julie described it as a utopia where the kids could rollerblade without having to worry about cars coming around the corner. Despite the appearance that life was good for the Baumeisters, this was not the case. Herb was difficult to work with, as he had been in his previous jobs. He constantly belittled and chastised Julie, treating her as though she was an employee rather than his business partner. While she resented this, she laid low in an effort to avoid confrontation. Fox Hollow Farm quickly began falling into disrepair. The inside was cluttered and dark, and the outside was overgrown with weeds. It looked abandoned and gave off an eerie vibe. Unsurprisingly, given the mounting tension from working together, Herb's erratic behavior, and their non-existent sex life, their marriage was also suffering. Julie threatened to divorce Herb, but never followed through with her threats. During the summer, she began taking the children for several months to stay with Herb's mother at her condo in Lake Wawasee, two and a half hours north of Westfield. Herb was happy to stay home and quote, look after the stores, as he told Julie. The reality was quite different. According to employees at the Save-A-Lot stores, Herb became careless and neglectful of his duties. Half of the time, he didn't even show up to work, and when he did, he reeked of whiskey. Herb treated his employees poorly and fired them for the smallest things. The stores were dirty and in a constant state of disarray. Bills piled up. By the end of 1994, the business was in dire straits. Herb Baumeister's life was falling apart. Through it all, however, there was one thing he always made sure to treat with great love and care, the indoor pool at Fox Hollow Farm. He made sure to always keep the wet bar fully stocked and liked to position dressed-up mannequins around the pool. Definitely not a red flag at all. All the while, something sinister was going on in downtown Indianapolis. Young gay men were disappearing without a trace. Ranging in age from 20 to 46, they were all white and had similar builds. They were last seen in gay bars or clubs in the early hours of the morning. There wasn't a whole lot of urgency in the Indianapolis PD to solve the disappearances of the missing young men. Indiana is conservative now, and was even more so in the 90s. Therefore, Due to being viewed as on the fringes of society, these men were hardly seen as a top priority. It was assumed they likely moved on to liberal coastal cities like San Francisco or New York. But the painful reality is that the majority of police and the public just didn't care. Few of the disappearances made it into the newspapers, and if they did, no more than a few lines were written on them. In 1994, Virgil Vandegrift, a retired detective with the Marion County Sheriff's Office and a guy with a great name who ran his own private investigation firm in Indianapolis, became involved in investigating the disappearances of the men. In business as a private detective part-time since 1982 and full-time since 1992, Vandegrift's specialty was missing persons. He was highly respected in his line of work and had earned a reputation for getting the job done. Vandegrift explained the process in which missing persons investigations would proceed in Indianapolis. For families with missing loved ones, it is understandably extremely frustrating. In Indianapolis, people aren't classified as missing until they've been gone for 24 hours. The case then goes to a district detective, and if they don't find them in 30 days, it travels to the Missing Persons Bureau for them to investigate. Parents understandably cannot wait that long to find out what happened to their kid, and wives don't want to wait to see what happened to their husband, so they come to me. Vandegrift's introduction to this case was when the mother of 28-year-old Alan Broussard contacted him. She explained that her son, a vulnerable man who struggled with alcohol dependence, was last seen leaving a gay bar called Brothers in downtown Indianapolis in early June 1994. At first, Vandergriff admitted that he wasn't overly concerned. He knew from experience that men in Allen's position—that is, gay in a very conservative part of the country— did often leave without telling anyone, in search of somewhere they could live free of discrimination and judgment. Nevertheless, he began looking into Ellen's disappearance. He put up missing posters around the city, particularly in spots he expected Alan might have frequented. It didn't take long for him to conclude that Alan had not just left of his own accord. A little digging led him to believe that there was something very dark going on. What brought him to this conclusion was learning that Indianapolis police detective Mary Wilson was looking into the disappearances of other gay men in the city. They all appeared to share similarities to the Broussard case. Then, he came across a write-up in a magazine called Indiana Word about another gay man named Jeff Jones who had disappeared a year earlier in mid-1993. Indiana Word, a gay lifestyle publication, which Vandegrift's investigators came across while canvassing gay bars for information on Alan Broussard, reported that 31-year-old Jeff Jones had simply vanished from the streets of Indianapolis one night. Then, the mother of 33-year-old Roger Goodlett contacted him. Her son was last seen under similar circumstances as Alan Broussard. He was reported missing in late July 1994. According to Mrs. Goodlett, Roger had left her home, where he lived, for a gay bar on 16th Street in Indianapolis. She cried as she described Roger, who was a kind-hearted, loving man who was very trusting and often drank too much. She knew that these characteristics made him vulnerable to being taken advantage of. All of this information combined convinced Vandegrift that a serial killer was stalking the streets of Indianapolis. Vandegrift spent evenings with an employee, Bill Hiltze, at the bars the men frequented, interviewing patrons and putting up posters. They didn't find out much, other than that Roger Goodlett had left the bar our place with a man in a light blue car with an Ohio license plate. When Vandegrift went to the police with his findings, he said they seemed disinterested, but he wasn't giving up. One day in 1994, Thirteen-year-old Eric Baumeister made a gruesome discovery while playing in the woods on Fox Hollow Farm. A human skull. He picked it up and brought it into the house to show his mother. Julie was understandably horrified. She told him to take her to where he had found it. On further inspection, the pair found a pile of bones. If reassembled, they looked as though they would make a fully formed human skeleton. When Herb returned from work that day, Julie demanded an explanation regarding the morbid discovery. The story Herb came up with was absurd. He told her that it was an old anatomical skeleton used by his late father, who was a doctor. He had been cleaning out the garage and burying it seemed like the best way to get rid of it. Julie did not question him further. In August 1994, Tony Harris, not his real name, reached out to Vandegrift. Tony had been friends with Roger Goodlett. He had seen a missing poster for Roger that Vandegrift had put up in a bar and thought he had some information that could help. He was pretty sure he had encountered the man responsible for Roger's disappearance. In fact, he had just barely escaped with his life. When he told the authorities, they told him he was crazy and to stop wasting their time. So he called Roger Goodlip's mother, who he thought would be interested in his story. She was very much interested and referred him to Virgil Vandegrift. Over the course of several meetings, Tony explained to Vandegrift how he had come to meet this elusive man and what had happened to him afterwards. One evening in early August 1994, While at a gay bar called the 501 Club, Tony noticed a tall, thin man staring intently at Roger's missing persons poster. Something about the way he scrutinized the poster and the fact that Roger was his friend made Tony approach him. The two began talking, and the man introduced himself as Brian Smart. He told Tony he was a landscaper from Ohio and he was living in an empty house north of Indianapolis, getting it ready for the new owners to move in. He asked Tony back to the house for a drink and a swim in the indoor pool. Tony obliged. Smart led Tony to a Buick with an Ohio license plate. They drove north, but it was hard for Tony to tell where they were going. It was dark, he was drunk, and he didn't know the area north of Indianapolis. All he knew was that wealthy people lived in those parts. They got off the highway, made several more turns, eventually arriving at a large, stately, Tudor-style home. All Tony could read from the sign at the end of the driveway was the word Farm. They entered the house, which was completely dark, through a side entrance. Tony noticed several cars sitting in the garage. The inside of the house was a cluttered mess of furniture and boxes. Smart led Tony down some stairs to the pool. He immediately noticed the mannequins around the pool, posed in different positions. The place sent chills down his spine. Smart offered him a drink, which he turned down. He then briefly left Tony alone, and when he came back, he was amped up, like he had snorted a line of cocaine. He convinced Tony to get in the pool. As Tony swam, Smart sat on the side of the pool and chattered excitedly. Suddenly, Smart's expression changed. He had picked up a hose and asked Tony if he had ever been choked during sex. It's such a great buzz. You should see how someone looks when you're doing it to them. Their lips change color. That's how you can tell it's working, he said. Hearing this, there was little doubt in Tony's mind that this man had murdered Roger Goodlett. Smart thrust the hose toward Tony, urging him to try out the sex act with him. Not wanting to upset the erratic, likely dangerous man, Tony placed the hose around Smart's neck and slowly tightened it. Smart masturbated as he did this. Then the two swapped positions. Tony could feel the hose getting tighter and tighter around his neck. He was sure that Smart was going to kill him. He pretended to pass out and the hose loosened. There was silence for a moment. Smart whispered Tony's name. When he got no response, he forcefully shook Tony, who then opened his eyes. You scared the shit out of me. You know you can die doing this. There have been accidents, Smart yelled. Was that what happened to Roger Goodlett? Was he one of your accidents? Were there others? Tony replied. Smart didn't respond. At that point, it was clear he wanted his guest to leave. The two got in his car and drove back to Indianapolis. Before Smart dropped Tony off, he made him promise that they would meet at a club the following Wednesday. Tony agreed, planning to tell the police about their upcoming rendezvous. Given that it had been dark and Tony was inebriated on the night, he wasn't clear where Smart's house actually was. But the way he described it, Vandegrift assumed it was either in Westfield or Carmel, both exclusive suburbs in Hamilton County. When Wednesday rolled around, Tony went to the club where he agreed to meet Smart. Vandegrift sent one of his investigators to stand outside and keep a lookout for anyone who drove by that resembled Smart, dark-haired, thin, and pale. This was due to the fact Tony had seen several cars parked in the garage, and Smart could be driving any of them. To Vandegrift's disappointment, Smart never showed up. At this stage, Vandegrift realized he was dealing with something big. He went to the Indianapolis police, specifically Detective Mary Wilson, who he believed would take Tony's story seriously, unlike the detectives he had gone to before. Furthermore, Detective Wilson was already working on several cases involving young gay men going missing from Indianapolis. Their names were Richard Hamilton, who was 20, Johnny Byer, who was 21, and Alan Livingston, who was 28. She had also worked on the Jeff Jones investigation, Jeff Jones being the missing man Vandegrift had read about in the Indiana Word magazine. Wilson listened intently to Tony, By the time he had finished telling her the story about his night with the man who said his name was Brian Smart, she was sold. She was pretty convinced that the Smart character was responsible for the disappearances of the men she had been investigating. Wilson drove Tony through the wealthy suburbs north of Indianapolis, hopeful that one of the large stately homes might ring a bell, but none of them did. She also had plainclothes policemen go to the gay bars downtown specifically the 501 Club, the Varsity, and Our Place, to find out if they knew anything about the elusive strangler Tony had described. The pair drove back to Indianapolis with no more information than they left with. Knowing that Tony had more chance of running into Smart than she did, Wilson told him to try and get his license plate number, and they'd take it from there vandegrift sent his investigator bill Hiltsley, to the suburbs to search for the mystery house he eventually spotted a sign at the end of a long driveway that read fox hollow farm bill remembered that tony had described a sign with the word farm on it he turned down the driveway it wasn't long before he came upon a large run-down sinister looking house It didn't look like anyone was home, so Bill cautiously got out of his car and took a look around. The place was eerily similar to the one Tony had described to Vandegrift. After a short time spent snooping, Bill found that the name of the family the house belonged to was Baumeister. Vandegrift felt good about what Bill had found. It all sounded promising. He had aerial shots taken of the property, but when he showed these to Tony, He shook his head. He didn't think that that was the house. The driveway looked too short. The investigation hit a dead end. Little progress was made for nearly a year after that. Vandegrift was getting the impression that Hamilton County officials, who seemed to have little interest in working with the city police, had the attitude that the people who lived in the suburbs were wealthy and successful and therefore above suspicion. Then, at the end of August 1995, Tony saw Brian Smart at the Varsity Lounge in downtown Indianapolis. Smart, probably spooked after his encounter with Tony, had been avoiding the nightlife scene. He knew people were looking for him, but he felt that a long enough period of time had passed for him to safely head back out. He couldn't have been more wrong. Tony approached Smart and began talking to him. Smart made an excuse and left quickly, but Tony snuck out after him, watching to see what car he got into. He climbed into a pickup truck. Tony scribbled down the plate number before he drove away. Wilson searched for the license plate number and found that it didn't belong to Brian Smart, but rather a man named Herbert Baumeister. He lived in Westfield, in an estate called Fox Hollow Farm, with his wife and three children. Wilson and her boss, Lieutenant Thomas Green, approached Herb Baumeister at the Save-A-Lot thrift store on Washington Street on November 1st, 1995. Wilson didn't beat around the bush. She told him straight out why they wanted to talk to him. He was a suspect in the disappearances of multiple gay men from downtown Indianapolis, she said, and they wanted to search his home. Herb did not consent to a search of his home. He told them that any further communication must go through his lawyer. As they drove back to Indianapolis, Green commented on how Herb Baumeister was clearly quote, nervous beyond belief. Green also said that Herb was one of the weirdest guys he had ever encountered. Wilson then turned to Julie Baumeister, who, as co-owner of the house, could also grant permission to search the property. Julie, however, was just as resistant as her husband. Herb told her he had been wrongly accused of theft and she, once again, believed him. When Wilson explained the real reason for why they wanted to search the property, Julie was stunned, but she was clearly in denial, not budging in her refusal to allow a search. Wilson gave Julie her card, telling her to call her if she changed her mind. Now, Wilson needed a warrant to search Fox Hollow Farm. However, Hamilton County officials refused her request. Vandegrift speculated as to whether this was due to them being scared to confront Herb without solid evidence, or whether they genuinely didn't believe he was guilty because he was a successful businessman living in a nice area, and wealthy successful people never commit crimes. Ha ha. Six months passed. Then in June 1996, Julie Baumeister made contact with Wilson through her lawyer, Bill Wendling. Herb was pretty much having a nervous breakdown. Their business was in ruins. The Children's Bureau had cancelled its contract with the Save-A-Lot stores. They had both separately initiated divorce proceedings. Thoughts of the bones Eric had found in the backyard two years before had been playing on Julie's mind constantly. After keeping it to herself for so long, it was a relief to finally tell somebody about it. Wendling told Wilson that Julie gave the police permission to search Fox Hollow Farm. Herb was away with Eric in Lake Wawasee at the time. Detective Wilson, accompanied by two Hamilton County law enforcement officials, Captain Tom Anderson of the County Sheriff's Office and Detective Jeff Markham, drove to Fox Hollow Farm the following day. Anderson spent no time being curious or open-minded, whining as they drove that the search was pointless and that the bones Julie told Wilson about were definitely just animal bones. He chastised Wilson, saying to her face that her suspicions were, quote, bullshit. Julie and Wendling met the three law enforcement officials at the house that afternoon. She walked them to the wooded backyard and pointed out the spot Eric had found the bones two years earlier. The reason she hadn't notified the authorities, she said, was because she really believed Herb when he told her it was an anatomical skeleton that belonged to his late father. Initially, nothing struck them as concerning about the yard, but as they walked beyond the back patio, all it took was a little nudge of a raised patch of dirt for them to make their first disturbing find. It was a charred bone, about a foot long. Whether or not it was human, they couldn't tell. As they looked down at the pebbles and the small rocks that they stood on, a terrifying realization dawned on them. They were not standing on pebbles and rocks at all. The matter under their feet was actually hundreds upon hundreds of tiny bone fragments. Anderson and Markham, attempting to reassure themselves that they were not on the cusp of having to deal with investigating how a mass grave came to be on the grounds of an estate in their county, continued to insist that the bones must be animal. Wilson, on the other hand, believed the opposite was true. The bones and bone fragments were bagged up as evidence and sent to forensic anthropologist Stephen Naroki at the University of Indiana for analysis. They're human, they're recent, and they've been burned, Naraki said describing the bones. The following day, Wilson, Anderson, and Markham returned to the scene of what looked like one of the worst crimes in Indiana's history. They were joined by other officials, including prosecuting attorney Sonia Leerkamp, and a dozen more detectives, to carry out a full dig of the premises. Stephen Naraki and his anthropological team were also there. They went about putting small orange flags in the ground to mark each bone fragment they found. After just half an hour, they had placed nearly a hundred flags. It looked like a mass disaster scene, Naraki said. As the dig continued, some police officers went inside the house. It was just as haunting and bizarre as Tony had described it. The mannequin stood posed around the pool, and the wet bar was still fully stocked. They also found a video camera, partly hidden, which Tony had missed. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that it was used by Herb to record his deadly fantasies. Julie, now aware of who her husband really was, was extremely worried about her son Eric, who was with his father in Lake Kowasi. She couldn't imagine Herb hurting him, but after seeing the excavation of their backyard and all that was being revealed, she just didn't know what he was capable of. Herb did not, however, know what was going on at home. Prosecutor Leerkamp and a county judge had custody papers drawn up to remove Eric from his father. Herb, with no reason to be suspicious, let the police take Eric back to Westfield with little resistance. Back at Fox Hollow, authorities continued their search. Heaps of compost in the yard were found to have an extraordinarily high bone content. It appeared that Herb likely burned the bodies of his victims under piles of leaves and other garden matter. Detectives interviewed Tony Harris, who described Herb's fondness for erotic asphyxiation. Unable to comprehend how Herb could have strangled, burned, and buried the bones of so many men on the property he shared with his wife and children, they interviewed Julie. Julie told them that she and the children would spend months on end at Lake Wawasi with Herb's mother while he stayed home alone. When comparing the dates of the many trips Julie and the children took with the dates the men disappeared, they lined up perfectly. All the while, the dig continued in the backyard. There were now about 60 volunteers involved. During the first few days, the dig yielded approximately 5,500 bones, bone fragments, and teeth. Stephen Narocki estimated that together, these made up about four bodies. They soon found out that Herb had not only buried the remains of his victims on Fox Hollow Farm, but also the farm next to it. The occupants crossed onto Fox Hollow, where they spoke to a detective about the bones they had discovered on their property. They showed detectives a drainage ditch which ran onto their land. In the ditch were countless human ribs, vertebrae, and sections of spine. There were so many of them, and they were more intact than those on Fox Hollow Farm. Some of the bones actually stuck up out of the mud. It looked like an apocalyptic wasteland. Perhaps these were the bones of victims Herb had killed later, after he had become overconfident and lazy in his attempts to conceal the remains. Digging in the area not only led volunteers to find more bones, but also cans of Herb's favorite beer, Miller Genuine Draft. They also found handcuffs he had likely used on his victims as he strangled them. By the time the digging concluded in this area, 140 more bones had been found, amounting to an estimated seven more bodies. Collectively, the bones belonged to a total of 11 men. However, only eight were eventually identified through their dental records. They were 33-year-old Roger Goodlett, 26-year-old Stephen Hale, 20-year-old Richard Hamilton, 31-year-old Manuel Resendez, 46-year-old Mike Kearn, 20-year-old Johnny Byer, 28-year-old Alan Broussard, and 31-year-old Jeff Jones. A warrant had been issued for Herb's arrest. Once he realized the police were on to him, he fled from his mother's home in Lake Wawasee. On June 28, 1996, five days after the bodies were discovered at Fox Hollow Farm. Herb's brother, Brad, reached out to detectives. He told them that Herb had called him from a small town in Michigan, saying he was on a business trip and badly needed money. Brad sent him some cash. Soon after, he found out about what was going on at Fox Hollow Farm. He called the police right away to notify them of his communication with Herb. Sometime between June 29th and July 2nd, Herb crossed the border into Canada. It was on July 3, 1996, that the body of Herb Baumeister was discovered in Pinery Provincial Park in Ontario. There was a single bullet wound to his forehead. Next to him lay a three fifty-seven Magnum revolver. A suicide note was also recovered at the scene. In the note, Herb cited his failed business, the impending bankruptcy, and the upcoming divorce as his reasons for taking his life he made no mention of the men he killed and buried in his backyard. The evening before he died, a Canadian trooper reported talking to him, asking him why he was sleeping in his car under a bridge. He told her that he was a tourist passing through and was just resting. She noted what looked like a pile of videotapes in the back seat. However, to this day, those videotapes have never been found. When Harb killed himself, Any hope of justice for the men and their families died along with him. While sentencing him to spend the rest of his life in prison would never bring their sons, brothers, and friends back, it would have been comforting to see the man who murdered them suffer some consequences for his heinous actions. Herb Baumeister effectively led a double life, one in which he was a family man and business owner, and the other in which he was a serial killer. Virgil Vandegrift, with his many years in law enforcement and further experience as a private detective, had some of his own thoughts on Herb. Vandegrift said, he fit all the components of a serial killer, among them the ability to keep his crimes in control and silent under an everyday nonchalance. He continued, he was a business owner whose store many townspeople frequented. I never met him, but from what I understand, He wasn't the type of guy you'd at first suspect of being a sexual psychopath. Herb was a lust killer, Vandegrift said. They are the most common type of killer, getting sexual gratification from the act of murder. They often torture their victims, and the more brutal the torture they inflict, the more aroused they become. Even the manner in which Herb got caught faithfully follows the mode of many serial killers' downfalls. He was overconfident in his ability to beat any investigation. He carelessly left clues. One very common trait, as practiced by Herb, was leaving his victims' bodies closer and closer to his home, Vandegrift said. Fox Hollow Farm has become a spectacle in the Indianapolis area and beyond. People are captivated by the beauty of the estate, but more so by the supposed paranormal activity which is said to take place there. While it's a hot spot for true crime fans, it also attracts paranormal enthusiasts. Self-proclaimed ghost hunters and paranormal experts have described the home as the most haunted house in Indiana. A number of strange happenings have been said to occur, including doors flying open at random and inanimate objects moving overnight. Different people have reported sightings of a legless man wearing a red shirt. When Vandegrift first began investigating this case, he quickly made connections to the murders of 12 men and boys between 1980 and 1991. Their bodies had been dumped along Interstate 70, 6 in Indiana and 6 in Ohio. Vandegrift shared Tony Harris's story with David Lindloff, a prosecutor from Preble County, Ohio, who was looking into what was being called the I-70 murders. Vandegrift and Lindloff agreed there were clear similarities between the two cases. As with the men whose remains were discovered in Herb Baumeister's yard, the victims found along the I-70 were known to frequent gay bars and clubs in Indianapolis. They were aged between 14 and 42. Even the youngest victims had supposedly been spotted in clubs and bars. Many had turned to sex work to support a drug or alcohol dependence. 11 out of 12 of the victims were white. The youngest, 14-year-old Delvoid Lee Baker, was black. Due to his race, some dispute whether he was really a victim of this particular killer. All of the I-70 victims had been strangled to death. All of them were either shirtless or only wearing their underwear when they were found. After hearing the news of the bodies found at Fox Hollow Farm, David Lindloff decided to do a little digging on Herb Baumeister. He discovered that Herb had made countless business trips to Ohio in the 1980s. When he got in touch with Julie Baumeister, she cooperated fully. She handed over all the information he asked for, including credit card receipts and phone call records. She also gave him full access to the car Herb had used on those business trips. In 1991, bodies stopped turning up along the I-70, which corresponded with when Herb moved to Fox Hollow Farm. The grounds of the farmhouse were probably a more convenient place for him to discard of his victims' remains. In early 1998, Investigators in Hancock County, Indiana, claimed they, quote, broke the case when they showed photos of Herb Baumeister to a friend of I 70 victim, Michael Riley. The friend claimed he recognized Herb as the man he saw Michael leaving an Indianapolis club with in May 1983. Michael's body was discovered about a week later in a drainage ditch off the I 70, a short distance outside of Indianapolis. I'm not sure how reliable this witness is, given there was 15 years between him seeing the man with Michael and identifying him in the photo. I'd say take it with a large pinch of salt. In 1998, investigators from Ohio and Indiana held a press conference in which they linked Herb Baumeister with the I-70 murders. There are, however, some who argue that pinning these murders on him was a cop out on the part of the police, who just wanted to close the case. There has never actually been any physical evidence linking Herb to the I 70 victims. The names of the men and boys officially considered to be victims of the I 70 strangler are 15 year old Michael Petrie, 23 year old Maurice Taylor, 22 year old Michael Andrew Riley. 17-year-old Eric Allen Rotger, 29-year-old Michael Allen Glenn, 21-year-old James Robbins, 26-year-old Stephen Elliot, 32-year-old Clay Russell Boatman, 19-year-old Thomas Clevinger Jr., 42-year-old Otto Gary Becker, Jean Paul Talbot, whose age at the time of his death was unknown and 14-year-old Delvoid Lee Baker, though as I mentioned earlier, whether he was a victim of this particular killer is disputed. Thanks for listening to this episode, guys. Sorry if the sound changed partway through. I just moved into a new apartment and I haven't sorted out my studio situation yet. Before I leave you, I've put a video of her Baumeister in the show notes. It's just a one-minute clip of him being interviewed by a local news channel about something totally unrelated to the murders or any sort of crime. Just that short video gives a lot of insight into him, in my opinion. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and please, please, please rate and review on Apple, and tell your friends. The links to my social media accounts are in the show notes. You can follow me to see pictures I put up from each case. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me at talkmurderwithme at gmail.com. Until next time!